Hello, welcome. This is a conversation on Watar today with Emmanuel Charles McCarthy, Melkite priest, Catholic tradition, a Nobel Prize nominee for his work on Christianity as nonviolence. And then recently he made a film about the meaning of Trinity. That's the actual name of the film. Check it out. Documentary talking about his work out at the explosion site of the very first nuclear test. He talks with me about Oppenheimer, about just war theory. That's how we got in touch. He's an important player in our world, and he's done a great deal in terms of figuring out, are Christians supposed to be nonviolent, as in pacifist? And he'll tell you exactly what he thinks about that. This, on today's Conversations on Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? So am I calling you father on this podcast, or do you prefer Charlie? How do you do it? Well, let me tell you, John. Uh, Jesus says, call no man father. Now, if you want to disobey Jesus, you can call me father. Okay, I'll try not to <laughs> disobey Jesus. But I'd, I'd suggest not disobeying your God, you know? All right, so this is, this is, this is Charlie. Charlie is good. Or Emmanuel or Charlie, either way. Charlie, Emmanuel... McCarthy. Well, Emmanuel um, Charles McCarthy. That's Jeez, right. oh, no. I got to get it right. <laughs> Emmanuel Charles McCarthy. By the way, I love this. This is a Boston accent, isn't it? Uh, uh, 100%, 83 years in Boston. You can't do better than that. You still there now? I'm still there now. So you're this famous character that agreed to come on and talk to us. We're not all Orthodox listening to this. There's plenty of people that aren't Orthodox, but... It's Why aren't that- they orthodox? How come they don't become orthodox? What are you doing? You're laying down in the job? <laughs> I think, I don't know. Is that a job that we should have? <laughs> That's beautiful. By the way, let's start right there. What is your, I, we're going to get into Just War. That's what I want to talk about. Because mm-hmm. you bumped into our podcast on Just War, and then the war broke out, and then you're this officiate, you're this beautiful person who spent all this time really considering this just war and what is a war and how does violence work in Christianity so to have you on is a blessing but before we do that what is a what's a missionary supposed to look like like when you're talking to non-Catholics in your case or non-Christians are you trying to hook them like how does it work well well I'll tell you faith is a gift from Jesus Hmm? it's given right all I can do is I can set the atmosphere. Hmm. So, and, and so in talking to people who are not Christian, my, my general attitude is uh, not to talk at all about theology, but to, to um, look at the situation in the moment and ask what it means to love as Christ loved. Hmm. Maybe that means helping them with the groceries or... I don't know, a thousand things, helping them teach something. I don't know. That's all. But yeah. it's it's action, not not cognitive stuff that, that sets the atmosphere. So I, w- I, I couldn't agree more. I, I get a little nervous when people come right with theological words 
to try to introduce me to Christ. It gets, it, it, it almost feels like pearls, you know, before swine. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's way down the road. <laughs> You're way down the road talking about accepting Christ into my heart. Like I get nervous about that. On the other hand, people are good generally and they try to be good. And that's a beautiful thing when people try to share their deepest thoughts. I don't mind I had that. a friend who's a priest. Yeah, this is years ago. I mean, this is 40 years ago. But about 40 years ago here in Boston, there were tons and tons of evangelicals, you know, that would meet you on the street and say, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe mm. in Jesus? And then you couldn't get rid of them. Regardless of whether you said yes or no. You know, you couldn't. But anyway, this fellow was a priest. He was in the subway in Boston riding on the train, which was crowded, and he saw this person coming toward him, and he knew what was going to happen because of the dress of the person and the yep. little yep. decorations on him. And so here he is, a Catholic priest, and the guy says the guy says to him, do you believe in Jesus? And he says, no. <laughs> the priest said that? He said, no. <laughs> so he good. just didn't want to talk. He just, you know. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, yeah, that was, that was uh, anyway, I know what you mean. It's uh, to, to come up to someone and start waving a finger in terms of, of the intricacies of, um, of the economy or something is, is a little it's too tough. much. It's tough. So before we get into just work, how did were you were you you were born Roman Catholic in, in the Northeast? Is that how that worked? Uh John, I'm Irish Catholic, one hundred percent. I go right back to St. Patrick himself, you know? Yeah, yeah. All sides of the family, all sides. Father, mother, grandfather, grandmothers, everything, you know. Uh and so I was born and brought up an Irish Catholic in Boston in the nineteen forties, and I was uh all of the 1940s, and I was, uh, and I was uh, fully indoctrinated in that world. I, uh, the Marines didn't didn't do a better job indoctrinating the guys that come into them to fight the wars, you know, than than I was in that 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 tight, closed Irish Catholic ghetto world. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not I'm not uh, demeaning it. I'm just saying that's what I was. How did you get? to become a Byzantine uh, priest in the Catholic tradition. How, how, how did that happen? Was this the was this story of your daughter? Do you tell the story of your daughter? Is I tell that... it, but that's long after, yeah. That's long oh, it after. is. That's long after. Yeah, yeah no, I, uh, I, I tell people the way I became a Byzantine Catholic priest was exclusively by the grace of God. Because when I was ordained, when I was ordained a Byzantine Catholic priest and married, huh? Uh, that that was not allowed by the church. That required special indults and everything else to yeah, have it done. Yeah, yeah. Now, now John Paul II allows the Byzantine Catholic Church to have married priests. But when I was ordained back on August 9, nineteen eighty-one, uh, that 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 required that required quite an ordeal. Huh? Really. Okay. So I was I was ordained August 9, 1981, but I had been attending. I had been attending the Russian Byzantine Catholic Church in Boston, which Cardinal Cushing set up after the Second World War, because there was in the general New England area a large group of all things Russian Catholics, 
There aren't Russian. many Russian Catholics in right. this world. They're Orthodox, you know? Right, yeah. But this group, it just happened to be, and, and so we set up this wonderful chapel, Our Lady of Kazan, and uh, I started, I, 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 for reasons, I just started attending it and stayed with it for the rest of my life. Okay. And so now there was a moment in your life, though, where you had this, this story about your daughter. So you're serving in the... You're serving as a priest. When do you get a daughter, though? How does that work? No, no. I, I, I've had 13. I have 13 children. And... Uh, it's because you... I see. Yeah, okay. That's because, because I'm Catholic. Yeah, well, it's because you're Catholic, but... How, <laughs> and you're a Byzantine priest. Otherwise, they wouldn't have let that happen. Is yeah, that, no, that that's... Uh, that, I have 13 children, and um, let's see, 1981, 7, 8... But before I was ordained, I had eight children. Five of them came after I was ordained. Got it. Got it. So, um, yeah, and and Benedicta, the one you're talking about, who's the Edith Stein miracle. Yes, Edith Stein. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she was uh, she was born in uh, in eighty four. In eighty four. Three years after I was ordained. Yeah. And through there, there was a miracle, and there was a saint that was consecrated in part because of this miracle. Is that true? That the healing of your daughter. Yes, that's true, John. Saint Edith Stein, whose religious name was Saint Theresa Benedicta of the Cross. Saint Edith Stein was a uh, born on on October twelfth, eighteen ninety two, in Breslau, Germany, to a totally Jewish family, Orthodox Jewish family. Her father died when she was two, but the family stayed Orthodox. She stayed Orthodox, but she she showed uh, great um, uh, great intelligence as a little child, and um, did really well in school. And uh, at thirteen, decided that God didn't exist, hmm. but never told her family because she didn't want to hurt them. So she went on through life like that, and she she was one of the first women to get a doctorate, in, and this is in philosophy, from uh, the German university system back in 1916. Mm. And she became the secretary, which doesn't mean taking notes. It means the, the first-hand helper of a philosopher who's probably created the only original philosophy in the 20th century, Edmund Husserl, he was the creator of phenomenology. And uh, so she stayed with him, and she just, she, she, she worked like, the, she, was, she was considered to have the best French among all the philosophers in, in that part of Europe at that time. And that included Heidegger, I mean, big names. Huh? Well, anyway, um, anyway, she... Uh, She was. She, she went away on a, on a on a weekend to visit two friends. Uh, and what happened was on that weekend, she, the two friends were called away for an emergency. So she was left all alone out in this farm area of Germany and nothing to do. So being a person of intellect, she just started roaming through their bookshelf. And what she found was she saw a book that she had heard a lot about, but had never read and never had really interest. But, and she picked it up, 
and she started um, perusing it, you know, and then that perusing went to a very, very serious reading that didn't end by her own statement till 5 o'clock the next morning. Wow. And when she closed the book, she said, these are her words, and she said them over and over again the rest of her life. When she closed the book, she said, this is the truth. And the book was St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography. Uh, okay. Now, I know other people that had that experience with that book. I never had it. I don't see it. I don't, but for some kinds of personalities, it is striking, huh? It's grace. And, and so she, be she became Christian. And, and she immediately, that morning, that morning, she went out and she went to a Catholic mass for the first time and she bought a catechism. Hmm. Because even when she was an atheist philosopher, she lived by that, that the moment you know a truth, not the moment before, but the you, moment you know it, you it's your duty to live it. And so she did that. She became a Catholic about six months later. And then, and then she taught in a Catholic uh, women's college. Uh, th this happened in 1921. Then she taught to the Catholic women's college until 1931. She got a job at uh, Munster University, but then she was fired from it because she was Jewish. And uh, at that point there, she became a Carmelite nun, 1933. Cloistered Carmelite nun in the old yeah. order. Wow, I did not know this. And then, and then that's 1933. And so she lived as a Carmelite until in, in Cologne, Germany now, Cologne, Germany, until 1938, when the Carmelite order said she had to move to Echt Holland because to a Carmelite uh, monastery there, because the intensity of the anti-Semitism in Germany was was threatening the Carmel, you know? So she did move. And and she moved to Act in 1938. And, uh, and, and she did, by the way, she did during this time, that is the time she was at Act, she did publish some extraordinary writings. One is called, the Sci in Phenomenology in Christianity, called The Science of the Cross, uh, 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 another is finite and infinite being, but but the thing was, uh, John, that uh, when she moved to Act, she was there in July of 1942. And in July of 1942, the Catholic bishops of Holland issued universally a statement for, that every priest had to read from the pulpit, which was a denunciation of the anti-Semitism and especially the sending of Jews out of the country who were citizens. Two days later, the Reich Commandant of, of Holland, it was under G German occupation, he ordered that every Catholic who was a Jew at one time be picked up. Yikes. So she was picked up right out of the convent, 5 o'clock at night. He came to the door, banged on the door. To her. Uh, she was brought to a holding camp in Vesterbrook in Holland, and then uh, that's on the second, and on and on the um, 
On the 7th, she was loaded on a train, arrived at Auschwitz on the 9th, and was immediately gassed. That's the story. So, so, as you know, probably, and it's, prob- it's probably true in the Orthodox Church, it is true, that it's not just that there's a, a, a celebrity. The question is the quality of the spiritual life that the pe- per person has lived. Mm-hmm. And so there was, um, so there was um, about 25 years of investigation. And every place they looked, this was a quality person. Quality person. Those huh? Catholics, they love to do their investigations. We they don't, are, we're not I'm so good at you, that. They, they don't <laughs> let a sin go by, you know. <laughs> That's their strong suit, sin. Anyway. Do some research. What, what, what they found, for example, what they found was when she was at Vestibuk, a uh, holding camp, before she went to Auschwitz, after she was taken from the Carmel, um... There was a there was a, there was a man there by the name of, of of Julius Levin, Jewish man, and he was just as people some people do. He was writing in a notebook what was going on there, and most of his writing was about how atrocious the misery and the suffering and what was going on. But he wrote in just a little speck of a paragraph in the notebook. But there is one here, a Catholic nun named. Theresia Benedicta, who is going about very calmly washing the little children, combing their hair, and comforting them because they're terrorized. And that's the kind of thing that she was. Anyway, she was killed on August 9th, murdered on August 9th, 1942. And, um, And so that's the way it was. I was ordained on August 9th of 1981 in Damascus, Syria, by Patriarch Maximus V. Mm. And um, wait, what? What jurisdiction? That's Melkite. 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 Byzantine Melkite. Byzantine Catholic Melkite. Got it. And he's the patriarch of the whole Melkite Church for the world. And anyway, I was ordained, and then. Three years later, in 1984, I came across the fact that Edith Stein, I didn't know who she was or anything else, I came across the fact as I was preparing a retreat for the seminarians, I was a spiritual director at the time, that Edith Stein died on August 9th. And I had known from my childhood even that Carmelites pray for priests. And I thought, this is a good, this is someone to look into. Mm-hmm. And the more I looked into it, the more I found magnif- just a magnificent soul. So we were having a daughter that year, my wife and I, and we agreed to name our little daughter after her, after mm-hmm. her religious name, Theresia Benedicta. Two and a half years later, when she was about two and a half, she took an overdose, that is, not intentionally. She thought it was candy because she saw the older children taking some aspirin that was hidden away, and she just, that was too much of an temptation. And she took a 19 times overdose of mm. um, Tylenol, extra Tylenol, and she was all but, she, she was dead for all practical purposes. And um, 
She went into hospital on March 20th of 1987. And um, my wife and I were in there for four days, and it was excruciating, just excruciating. She, everything the doctors told us was, this is terrible. But anyway, at, um, as it turned out, that Sunday, which would have been the 22nd, I had, six months earlier, agreed to give a retreat on gospel nonviolence in North Dakota. So the question was whether to go and give the retreat or to go with my, 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 my uh, dying daughter, because she was dying. There was no sense. And so I walked into the room the night before to, it's the truth, it's all in the documents and everything mm-hmm. else. I walked into the, to my bedroom after coming from the hospital. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And there was a book on the floor. I picked it up about to throw it away. It was open on the floor. I picked it up. And then I looked at it. And it was Teresa of Avila's um, way, of, uh, way of Silence, I think it was. One of the ways. It's one of the books. And anyway, that's not important. What is important is just as I looked at it, it's like a line in big black print jumped out at me, but it wasn't a big black print. And the line read, you take care of my business and I'll take care of your business. Really? Jesus is talking to Teresa of Avila, who's the greatest mystic in the history of the church, Catholic church. And this is what he says to her as she's complaining to him about how bad things are going. He's saying her, Take care of my business, I'll take care of your business. And with that as a little bit of touch of hope, huh? I went out, gave the retreat in North Dakota. At this is how it went. When the retreat was over on the 24th of March at 1 o'clock North Dakota time, I didn't, t- that's the first time that I told the retreatants what was going on. Oh, you kept it. Okay. I kept it because it would have changed the whole thing. Exactly. Right. So the next thing, so what happened, John, is I come home and I find out Benedict is all better. She's healed. She's healed. And no one can account for it. I go to see her the next morning. She's she's out of the intensive care and everything else, and she's sitting in a regular room in the in the hospital, just just reading book. Oh. So, After you went to take care of your business. God's business in North Dakota to nonviolent Jesus. That's right. That's right. So then, John, she left the hospital. They kept her for six days trying to figure out how could this be. Because, because the last time I was in the hospital with Benedicta, the doctors told me that every indicator that they had was her liver was dead. Her kidneys were seriously dying. You know, everything was everything was off. Her blood. And all of a sudden, so... The Carmelites heard about this. And, of course, they immediately connected Edith Stein, Benedict's name, huh? Mm-hmm. And so they asked me to get the records out of the hospital, the medical records, which I did. I gave them to him. But while I was waiting, John, this is this is this is what happened, and it's 
sitting there all documented in the Vatican. While I was waiting, I looked to see what the progress of things was when Benedicta was in the hospital. Anyway, I looked at the time that she got out of the, where they say a miracle occurred. She was found to be totally healthy at 2 o'clock Boston time, which was 1 o'clock South Dakota time. A doctor came into the room, and the, in the morning before, there was a page and a half of stuff he wrote that was bad. And he came in the room, and there it is, right on the sheet. This child has made a remarkable recovery. Report will have to follow. Wow. Two o'clock. So then the Carmelites took it, and because Edith Stein was a martyr, she only needed one miracle for canonization in the Catholic Church after all the investigations. And so they brought this to... Uh, they brought this to the Vatican, the castery that does this sort of stuff. And her the doctor who's Jewish, um, Ron Kleiman, the head of what pediatric uh, intestinal stuff in Mass General and Harvard, he went and he testified. And he told, he Jewish man now, he told the Vatican medical team there, about 15 doctors, and he went out and he took break, brought all the uh, material papers with him and showed there was no possible n way in known science that this could have happened. Mm. Now, there if it was it a Catholic doctor that did that, they might say, yeah, it's a setup, you know? Yeah. But it's a Jewish doctor for a he's Jewish just, nun. He's reporting what he saw. That's what he did. Why do you think the modern world... I mean, we know, we could talk about why they reject that. I want to get to just war, but why does the modern war reject, uh, why does the modern world reject the story? Like, it's not, it, mir miraculous things happen. What would be the explanation for the secularist there? Just something in her body was able to fight those molecules and those, those, those illnesses off. I guess for me, the question of it is so fascinating. Like, we're inclined to, Everything's a question, right? Everything's skeptical. Is that what's happened to us in the modern world? We're taught to be skeptical. It's like a part of our being. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, John. The skepticism is the product of superficial, superficial consciousness development. Consciousness, not conscience. We live superficial lives. On the surface, there's nothing underneath the surface. There's no questions about why is the surface even here? Where did it come from? <laughs> it's that all that is, all, all that the, the concern is a practical utilitarian consequentialism. How do I get things done for tomorrow? And if I'm successful at that, that's it. But don't you ever, you must have as a person of faith, but tomorrow is, is death on some level, at some point. I mean, what's the, it's just nihilism creeps in at that point for me. If I tried to live that way, I'm telling you, I, w I would want to live all the way that way. I would have many more women. I would have, you get what I'm saying? Like, how does someone stay in the superficiality? That's what I don't understand. Maybe it's just because, I don't know. I don't know. My parents were those parents. You stay in know. the superficiality 
You stay in the superficiality by entertaining yourself. Mm. Entertainment is the road to superficiality. That's what it's meant for. We all know if you want to make money in this world, go into some form of the entertainment industry. Mm. People will pay anything to escape looking at reality seriously. Not just for the reason you said, but that's one reason, huh? Death. Huh? Mm. That, but there's a lot of reasons, huh? In terms of, in terms of what I really am, what sin beyond oh. uh, that. So no, it's better to stay right at, superfic- right at the superficial level, and uh, and be worried about the Red Sox, you know. <laughs> I like baseball. That's my problem. I do too. <laughs> but it's not a, it's not an elixir, right? So yeah. then, somewhere in your life. That kind of attitude right there, it was applied toward the idea of war. Because, I mean, you've done a lot of work on this. You were nominated for a, for a Nobel Peace Prize. So, That's right. So nonviolence, pacifism, help me out. A Christian can and should be a pacifist, or a Christian is a special kind of pacifist, or a Christian can use justified violence. Where do you stand on that? Oh, well, okay. First of all... And we'll get into Bishop Barron. I want to talk about him, too. First of all, I don't use the word pacifist. Because pacifist came into the human language in 1880 in France as a word. First use of it. It meant the rejection of war. The first time it was in the Oxford English Dictionary was 1910. And it meant the same thing, the rejection of all war. Jesus doesn't reject all war. He rejects all violence, including internal violence where you just plan to hurt people or hate people. Or Jesus doesn't just against it. He says just the opposite. In the face of it, you love. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And so I don't use the word pacifist. I use the word, I use the term gospel nonviolence. And I would say that, I would say, John, that the, there are two things in my life that have been there since childhood which are not my doing. They're not my doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking little kid, preschool. And this is extraordinary. The first is I wanted to know the truth. The truth. And people were fooling me all the time. And I, I knew they were fooling me. They weren't. Uh, and I wanted to know the truth. I was just compelled truth. I want to know what the truth is, you know? And, um, and this got me into a little trouble in Catholic grammar school when a lot of the teachers at this time in the, in the 40s, huh, there was sisters, they didn't have much of an education and they'd just yeah. say the. The rote, huh? Just and I'd follow the, up and the data, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, so the <laughs> truth that I was, and it is to this day too. The truth is still, is still, just active in me. Desire for it, huh? Desire for it, no compelling desire. The other thing that was in me, since my earliest memory, is the active dynamic of empathy. Empathy. I hated to see people hurt. I hated to see people cry. I hate, you know, and here's, and here's why 
Back in the early 1940s, every time you went to the movies, you got a movie tone news uh, thing at the movies, two, two cowboyish movies, and then, and then some, yeah. But there was this movie tone news that was always there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was always about Americans beating, winning over Japanese, the Germans, a German boat being sunk, a Japanese pilot going down in flames. And when those things came on the screen, in, in my world, the entire audience would stand up and applaud and yell and cheer. I didn't. Not because I was better, but I hated what white yeah, guys yeah, looked Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was intrinsic. And yet I, I played Army. I played Cowboys and Indians. I played all that. But I knew the difference looking at the real thing. The truth was that was the real thing. And that, that, I just found that to be intolerable. So those two things were in my existence for a long, long time, uh, right from the beginning. And uh, they became, they, they became um, sources of being unpleasant to people at the high school level. <laughs> and then in the college level, they became even more accentuated in terms of I thought people were trying to pull the wool over my eyes and this, that, and the other thing, you know? So with those two things going, it seemed to me someplace along the line, and I don't know why it happened. It's certainly grace. My deepest suspicion is that it came via Martin Luther King. He was the agent. That is, over and over and over again in the 50s, the early 50s, late 50s, 60s, he was using the word like it was an everyday word, nonviolence. And he was relating it to Jesus, the church, being a Christian. He was, he was out in front. No one in the Catholic church, and I ever hear say that. No one. In fact, in my second year moral theology book, which I have upstairs at Notre Dame, it specifically says Catholics cannot be pacifists. It's a sin. 19, that's 1948. So, and a book was published in 48. It was still being used in, in uh, 58. But it was that constant bombardment by King of just the word. What is this? What's, what's, is this true? You know, it's just mm-hmm. something began to seep in. And then, and then when I went out to Notre Dame in the first month, I heard for the first time the St. Francis prayer. You know, Lord, make me an answer. Where's hatred? Let me show love. Where's injury? And I said to myself, that's the truth. That's the gospel. Hmm. And from that point on, I began looking, 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 saying, is it, is it possible that the church is wrong and king is right? <laughs> that can't be. Anyway, I finally, sometime in my, in my early 20s, I came to the conclusion that Jesus, Jesus taught, Jesus taught a way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies. That was it. And he did and not teach just was, war. Immediately, John, upon he- thinking that, this is you've got to go back to those days. Now it's hard. The first thing that occurred to me was I was excommunicated. I was thinking like a heretic. Oh wow! Because in the Catholic Church, that was not permitted. And I knew about pacifists, like Quakers, 
But they were Quakers and they were always brushed off as irrelevant people. Hmm. But I was now dead, dead on center. This is the truth. Jesus, Jesus with the machine gun is intolerable as far as... Well, anyway, that's the way life was for about two years until I came across the fact that Dorothy Day, who was a household word and a, a star in the Catholic galaxy, you know? Mm-hmm, for sure. That's, that, that this is what she believed, and that freed me up. And that freed you to stay that's in a the, church that, that you love. Stay in the church, knowing that <clears throat> even though the bishops and the popes and so forth said this, that area, she was in the church, and she was honored, and so forth and so on, and she was explicit. But she was also, like you, going to be set up for some pretty serious conversation, oh, God, some yeah. arguments. Oh, we'll but, never know. Because we'll never Just know. War is also, I know you're not a big fan of Just War. We'll talk I'm about your movie fan. in a minute. I think it's wrong. I think it's evil. Why is it evil? We talked a little off camera. There's something about proportionality and also a cause worth fighting that you don't think these these thing these these conditions can be met is that right if you go through the standards of the just war theory even the limited ones mentioned by bishop baron in your previous huh? in our podcast yeah yeah every one of those cannot be any not, all of them have to be applied according to catholic teaching in in the catechism in the catechism in writing all of them have to be applied strictly. The word is, the word is in italic, strictly. It's emphasized, hmm. which, of course, is always right because it means you're taking a human life. Hmm. You got it. You know, all, right. all right. However, not one of those standards, not one of those standards is in any way, shape, or form clear how you can apply it without without going against Jesus' teachings. Just cause. You you can't know. Is that one of your... You can't know that it's just. Just cause. Uh, yeah, well, that's... that's as, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, the, the Aeschylus is saying that truth is the first casualty of war. Hmm. Ends all possibility of applying the just war theory because no one is telling the truth. How many of how many people knew? Certainly not, certainly not my parents or anyone in my family. How many people knew of Winston Churchill and Roosevelt's shenanigans? Not just shenanigans, setting up the Second World War during the thirties, preparing for the Second World War during the thirties. My parents didn't know that. The lies. The same with the Vietnam War, the Gulf of Tonkin, huh? Or we go on to the recent ones, you know, and so forth and so on. Um, weapons of mass destruction. It lies, 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 lies. But how can you apply a moral theory that requires you find out the truth of what's going on and strictly find it out before you can act with the level of moral certainty you need to do, to, to do good, not evil? Is that being evidenced with... Palestine and Israel right now. I mean, that's how I, I know that's how everyone I know feels. I know that we're not there, but the Palestinian friends, the Orthodox friends that I'm aware of that are writing, their story is not matching up with the story of the Israelis. Like, I guess it's it's a morass, right? We don't know. And so in that sense, 
how do we act on things we don't know? How do we kill when we're not sure? Is that you right? Can't. Because under normal circumstances in the Catholic Church and similar things in the Protestant in, in the in the Protestant Orthodox Church, under normal circumstances, when you when there is a serious moral decision to be made, there is always doubt. There is always doubt. However, there are those situations where the gravity of what is going to take place is so severe, like killing a person or causing grave suffering, that that doubt almost has to be completely eliminated mm -hmm. before you can act morally. Mm -hmm. so, so, the problem with the just war theory on the larger scale is, is that... <clears throat> is that, first of all, it's not in the Gospels. Not in the Gospels. There is no just war theory in the... Secondly, there's no just war theory in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist. People go to war in the Old Testament because God tells them, hmm. not because of standards and so forth. Secondly, the problem with the just <coughs> war theory is that it's not in the Gospels where does it come from? It comes from Cicero, <clears throat> a pagan <clears throat> Roman philosopher 65 years before Jesus. Jesus has nothing to do with it whatsoever. That's right. <clears throat> For the first 300 years of Christianity, this is extraordinary. For the first 300 years of Christianity, John, there is not one sentence written by a Christian, not a sentence justifying Christians' participation in war. Not one sentence in 300 years. That's unbelievable. And those are the 300 years closest to Jesus. The justification is interesting because in the Orthodox tradition, I mean, across the board, People will go to war. I don't want to ask you that question about when a young man gets caught in this furnace of war and they're off and killing people. But the justification is interesting because you come back and confess, even though you were asked by the state or by your by your commanding officer to kill, you still have to confess sin. So you're not justified, but you are forgiven. <laughs> what do you think about that? That is uh, unacceptable, but it is you, you've stated it correctly. There's no just war theory of any kind in, in orthodoxy. That's right. Doesn't, it doesn't exist, never existed. In fact, orthodoxy sees a large portion of what Augustine was about as unacceptable as far as Christian theology. However, when you go and commit sin with the hope that you're going to be able to go now and at a later date, and get God's forgiveness for what you are now intentionally doing, instead of struggling to love as Christ loves now, hmm. that 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 is a uh, that's a terrible situation to tell people that's what they can do. The task of the moment, the task of the moment, when the government when when Biden says to a Christian. Go over there and fight the Arabs or whatever it is. The task for the Christian is to say, I am a Christian. I cannot kill. Mm. Period. And those are the words of St. Marcellus in the uh, 5th century. Yeah. 
I'm a Christian, I cannot kill. Now, what you, what you and I got to do, and uh, not you and I, but, but what I've been saying is, Jesus' teachings, but, well, let me put it this way. There is a famous, famous biblical scholar in the Catholic Church, the most famous and the most renowned of the, the second half of the 20th, 20th century, a Jesuit by the name of John L. McKenzie. Um, and in my own life's experience, he's the brightest human being I've ever met. Wow. One of those incredible intelligences. And his works are out there. They're still published and everything else. But what he says, what he says is this. If we cannot know, this word, quote, word, if we cannot know from the Gospels that Jesus rejected violence, we can know nothing of his person or message. It's the clearest of teachings. What that means is we can't know anything about him being Messiah, Word of God, anything else. Not uh, uh, rejecting adultery, because it's as clear as can be that Jesus rejects violence as the way of doing God's will. And it's not one quote, put up the sword or something like that. It's the fact that the entire structure of the New Testament Gospels is, is based in and around the suffering servant of Isaiah. But who doesn't raise a finger, doesn't even raise his voice in protest against the injustice. He's, he's, and yet, it says at the end of that poem, the salvation he brings will go to the coastlands, meaning the whole world. Mm-hmm. But no, no. let me let me try this without, I don't know, mangling it. I think in, in the East anyway, there's a notion, St. Cyril talks about this, um, that you can do two goods. You can turn the other cheek and defend your brother, and the defense may look like violence, but what it actually is is a second good. It's an attempt to defend someone who's defenseless because you can choose to be a martyr, but you can't allow, you can't choose for others that they too might be a martyr. In other words, if your wife is being attacked through, I don't know, a Palestinian or an Israeli attack, you're defending her. And in that defense, it's a very different activity than say, I don't know, um, than, than killing. It's, it's more like, a response to aggression and that response ends in in death which by the way you have to ask for forgiveness for and you have to realize was wrong because all the sins are wrong Christ speaks clearly about lust and all and we participate and we participate on some level that we don't want to but in all cases we're asked to go and confess in other words I guess the Orthodox position is is of course you're right but where we defend the defenseless, we do two goods instead of one, you know, instead of one. What do you think of that from St. Cyril? I think that, I think that um, he has it wrong. And this is why I think he has it wrong. Um, now, don't forget, he's, he would not argue that he didn't sin. He no, would no, sin- I know, I know. Um, He's arguing you can make the choice to to, to defend. defend with violence, let's say. Right, with violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, 
First of all, one has to go and look, where in the Gospels does Jesus say that? Too much of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, where they go is they go back to the fathers and they just don't go yes, they to the do. source, the foundation, to see if what this father is saying is consistent with what Jesus is saying. And I, I, I wrote a rather extended paper. I don't know if you ever you can look at it on my website. And so We'll forth. include it. We'll link it. Uh, is, uh, you know, uh, uh, an extended paper on the father of Byzantine theology, Maximus the Confessor. Oh, we love him, yes, very much. And Maximus is absolutely clear. You defend against evil with love. And by love, he means modeled on Jesus. Therefore, Jesus comes into this world to defend people against evil. Jesus just doesn't lay down and let evil run over him. Right. That's the question that I think many people want to ask that. you. You can't do it. That's not, that's not human. That's, that's not what Jesus does. The question is not whether one defends against evil and tries to protect against evil. The, the question is what means are available to the baptized Christian to do that? Okay, so what tool belt? means have what tool to be belt? consistent with loving as Jesus loved. So, so uh, that may mean, that, that may mean, John, that may mean if you choose Jesus means in this moment rather than, uh, rather than the means of the world, that is, if you choose to love the enemy as Christ loves the enemy instead of trying to kill the enemy who's going to kill you, that may mean that you die. But that also means if you die, you're dying in the way of God. Whereas if you kill, you're continuing your life by choosing the way of Satan. It's clear. Yep. It's clear. It is. It's very, very clear, John. Now, I'll tell you something. You know, I've been saying these things for 50 years now, but... I should also mention that, that that no one wants to hear them. <laughs> Why no do you think that is? I, I I I I want to hear them and think I'm thankful you're here. But I agree, especially right now. This war is breaking out all over the place. So what? Why don't they want to hear? I'll, I'll ask a different question. Why don't Christians want to hear it? What's happened? Well, <laughs> Christian just war theory. In the Catholic mind, in, in, other, in similar things that go on in the rest of Christianity, too. Uh, because it's only about 5, 6, 5, 4% that, that actually honestly say inside themselves and will say, no, Jesus is nonviolent. He lives a way of nonviolent love of all people, wherever he meets them, and, that's, and he dies it. Most 95% are just war or something like that, Catholics or Christians or some... Okay, so why? If you live in a cannibal society, hmm. and you live in a cannibal society, which is one of the oldest societies in the world, about 10,000 years old, and you've been nurtured from childhood, and your parents and grandparents, and all, and all the institutions are set up that justify cannibalism... If someone comes in and says, you know, this, this is wrong. This is not right. 
You can't hear that because it's yeah. not just a cognitive yeah. problem. You now got sociological problems, yeah. personal, yeah. Yeah. psychological, family, everything is all tied up into it. So I can tell you this, John, from over 50 years of teaching this. If I go to, if I go into a place and I say, today, tonight, big crowd, you know, tonight we're going to talk about justice. Everyone will cheer, you know. Tonight, tonight, we are, we, 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 we are going to talk about goodness. Everyone will cheer. Tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus. Everyone will cheer. If I say tonight we're going to talk about the nonviolent Jesus, not a sound. Not only not a sound, a friend of mine, a minister, Elvin Kilpatrick, in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, he was trying to figure out how to, how to get ordinary Christians and ordinary churches to just think about this, just yeah. maybe do some reading. So for two years, what he did was, on Sunday, he would walk on the public sidewalk outside the churches of the various denominations, Catholic, Protestant, you name it, a different one every Sunday. And the sign would just say something like, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says, no to violence, put up the sauce, things like that, simple little things. John, for two years, he experienced Sunday after Sunday after Sunday hate and vitriol from people coming out of church. Is it is it a bridge too far? Is our nature not allow us to understand what you're saying or maybe embrace the idea of not fighting back when someone's in danger? Is if it, I, it, uh, not fighting back the way people fight back normally. Okay, fighting back... Nurture. Now, I, if I, I were to say that. to you, yeah, I agree. If I were to, if if I were to say to you, John, you don't have a right arm. You look and you say, oh, I got a right arm. I know. I say you don't have a right arm. Well, I got a right arm. Look, look. Now, if I were to say that two or three times, you say, I mean, after two, three, four times, you say, this this guy's a jerk, you know? Yeah, he's crazy. This guy's a jerk, you know? Yeah. We wouldn't get mad at me or anything. You'd feel sorry for me, maybe. But when I say to people, Jesus teaches a way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies, he rejects. And that has a lot of implications in terms of Christians going to war and all kinds of other things, what they support. People become hostile. You don't become hostile when I say you never write am if you're sure of your truth. But every Sunday... For all their lives, people have heard the Gospels. Although there were certain churches now in Christianity no longer reading the Gospels, they're only reading the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. But be that as it may, every Sunday they've heard something about the love of God for people that's in need or this or that, but, but no violence, just Jesus. Huh? They've had that put in their mind, and simultaneously, parallel, they've had put in their mind what the culture, the Christian culture says about using violence to defend the country, the, the women, the whatever, or to get what you want. And so what takes place is that there's a, that there's a, um, 
that there, that, that, that there is an internal contradiction that people don't want to live with. And they yeah, resolve it right. by just saying, violence is in my interest. How can it be in your interest if it's the way of Jesus, which is a way of love that is nonviolent? That's always important to remember. Well, well, Jesus' easier. way is a way of love. It's not the nonviolence in Christianity is an adjective. It's not a noun. It's nonviolent love. With Jesus, if Christ-like love is the way to eternal life. Yeah, there you go. What? What about you? What do you mean it's in your interest to do this? And so, when I was, I, I gave a talk a few years ago at the University of Notre Dame, and under the altar, the the the. the um, Every church has an altar stone, and the altar stone is a stone in the altar that has within it, at the time they build the church, that has within it the relics of some saint. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Notre Dame you happens Catholics, to have... You guys still do that, right? Do you still do that in the Catholic Church? Is oh, still, still in the Catholic Church, yeah. 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 And, so, and so in 1872, uh, a priest brought a relic of St. Marcellus back to Notre Dame, all, right, put in the altar, and there it's been all those years in the main altar at the University of Basilica. Well, anyway, anyway, I gave a talk at Notre Dame a few years ago on a family value saint. That's what I titled the talk, a family value saint. And I talked about St. Marcellus. Why? Because the Romans were like any other government. They knew... That if you want to, if you want to manipulate and move people in your direction, don't just attack them. Attack the family. Mm. Attack the kids. Attack the wife. And so, Saint Marcellus not only died for being a Christian, he wouldn't go in the military. He wouldn't. He wouldn't pick up arms. Yeah, he, he wasn't alone in the ancient world. But his family, they took and killed. And therefore, he's the family value saint. Because that's what it means to be a family value saint in Christianity, to place eternal life over a momentary extension of temporal life. We have Saint Saint Sophia and her daughters. I don't know if you know those story. That's their their pre schism. They tell that same story you just told. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there 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 are all these contradictions. I, I'm fascinated with. For, for me, I became Orthodox, and I you know I was. I was like you and my daughters are like you too. They, they have an inclination toward empathy. And I think I was always seen as sort of weak uh, with other guys that way. Like I would, you know, be giving my jacket to a little cold homeless guy or something. And I was that person, but I never could understand how a Christian could not be a quote, a pacifist, but in orthodoxy, I think your bar, I think your bar is right. And correct, but also it lacks a certain type of pastoral reality, which is we don't ask the same things for other sins. You see what I'm saying? It's like I agree with you. You should not lust in your heart, and 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 that's right. And that happens, and we know it. And and that person has sinned, and they have to go and they have to confess. The thief. We're, we're tempted in many, many ways, including in a way to strike our brother. But striking our brother on behalf of someone else who's defenseless, it, uh, I, I'm with you. You're getting a weak person trying to explain a 
Why don't you just put it in terms of defend your brother by absolutely positively internally in you be willing to lay down your life for him? But not what does it look life. like? So, so can I tell you a quick story? And yeah, then I want to yeah, ask yeah. you about Oppenheimer in the movie. Quick story. Uh, it's, I'm in my house. It's a little house. It's down in Florida. When we lived in Florida, my girls are in there. They're young, you know, like five, six, right in there. And we got a big Great Dane. And there's my dog is acting crazy. There's something going on in the backyard. And so I want to see if this scales down from like, you know, World War One, Israeli, down to my backyard. Yeah, so, right. Absolutely. So I take my dog. I'm like, what's going on? And we go out. It's a big Great Dane, you know, 150-pound great dog. And and rah, 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 rah. and then somebody has jumped into over the fence into our yard. It's dark, it's night, and is running across the yard and trying to jump over the, the other side of the fence. And my dog is ready to tear them apart because right. out of nature, and my nature is to weirdly let the dog tear them apart, but I didn't. Ah, uh, you animal, you, you animal. <laughs> I, I didn't. because my And I went back inside. I watched him. I sort of ran at him and yelled, but I didn't let the dog go. And then he jumped over. And I learned later he was probably a guy doing drugs down the street and yeah, trying right, to sure. get away, something, something. Went back inside. Here's my story for you, and I want to hear what you say as a pastoral person. As I went inside, my wife gushing, she heard me yelling, she was so happy. She was inside with her children and she was so thankful. And she like gave me a hug and she said, thank you. And not thank you, but she was like, that yeah. was great. Yeah. My daughter comes out, my six or seven year old daughter comes out enraged. What was that about? I said, there was a man back there. She said, you sounded so angry. I said, well, there was a man trying to break in. She said, that's not how a Christian acts. She's like eight. Yeah. <laughs> And my wife and I looked at each other, and to this day, we still both don't understand fully what was right about that because it feels like one of those paradoxical Christian moments where there's two right, there's two wrongs, there's two rights and two wrongs happening at the same time. I don't know. There what do you think? Any, there can't be any right, John. There can't be any good that is not consistent with God's will. And God's will is totally and definitively presented in Jesus, his words and deeds in this world. There's no two goods if you're going against God's will. There, is, there may be two goods in the sense of what I'm saying is good, and what the, but what, as far as doing good, and only God is good, as far as doing good, it's either God's will or it's not good. Or, or, and or God's will good. for the Christian is me. You know, he wants me to do something. That, that brings me to a point you just mentioned before your story. Your story was to scale this down a little from war, you know, back to my backyard. No. John, the real moral issues, moral issues, war is not a moral issue. The state is nothing. It doesn't exist except as a, a concept. Morality exists only where there is a personality 
that can choose between right and wrong, good and evil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A state can't do that. A law can't do that. What can do that is people under the cover of a state or under the cover of war say that they're doing this or they're doing that because it's war. That's their excuse. But they themselves, as persons who have a free will, a will, and who are conscious and who have a personality that's responsible to God, it's the guy who's making the choice on the front lines to pull the trigger, to put the bullet in the head. He is making a choice. There's the morality or the immorality of war. The same with the guy in the White House who's sending people over to burn people, flame with flamethrowers, etc. He is making a choice. It's not the state. That's a cover-up. Uh, and therefore, I think that's it becomes true. important. It becomes important to realize Jesus is talking to the person. There's where the salvation of a soul is concerned. It makes no difference if you're a if, if, if you're a soldier or you're a trash collector. You you can't go against the will of God as revealed by Jesus and make some make some harebrained thing that 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 is good just because you you did it or you wanted to do it or you thought it should be done no if it's against the will of god as revealed by jesus then whether you're a soldier whether you're a policeman or whether you're a president or whatever you'd be here's a tough question for you emmanuel charles this is a tough question so someone you know from the neighborhood in Baston goes out to a war. They know what they're doing. They know they're going to fight. And they're even Navy SEALs. And they kill. And they come home. And they come to you in, in the confessional. Uh, what do you do at that point with that character? If they confess killing? Yeah. I forgive them. Yeah. As yeah. a priest. As a priest. Yeah, I forgive them. Because you understand, positively. even though now, they, they willed it. it. Now, they may not confess it, John. They may still think it's right. That's where it gets dicey. No, I, I, don't, go and, I don't go and push people in confession. They're supposed to make the examination of conscience with true repentance before they walk in that, you know, and then, then what they're in the confession for is to experience the mercy of God's forgiveness. They're they're there to experience the good news of merciful forgiveness. They are not there to get good advice from me. (laughs) Now, they, mind you, each and every penitent, you and I included, we have to be very careful of self-deception, telling ourselves that something is good that's evil. Because, yeah, but assuming that we make the, the sincere examination of conscience and we, this is good, and we don't confess it, if the day comes when you see it's evil, that's the day you see the truth, that's the day you confess it. Yeah. All right. But remember this, John. Remember, this is something very important in terms of moral theology. Subsequent analysis cannot alter the quality of a personal moral act. Subsequent analysis cannot alter the quality of a personal moral act. If I, if I, if, if, if I'm on the front lines and I'm firing a gun and I don't see anything wrong with it, then 
it's not it's not evil. I mean, it's not sin. It can't be sin. It may be evil, but it's not sin. Ah, okay. I was just going to, okay. Yeah, in other words, evil is what's contrary to the will of God. That's right. Objectively, sin is full knowledge and full consent choosing evil. Well, if I don't see this, you know, this is kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting sort of thing, only because, only because people oftentimes become, become overwhelmed with past, past evils that they've done. Well, this is important. Yeah, they become actually they become disabled by it. That's right. Absolutely, positively. And in the Catholic churches, I don't know. I know in the Catholic church, this is a major, major problem. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, uh, and, and uh, by the way, just to tell you, and you, as you know, clerics, not just Catholic, but Orthodox, Protestant, and so forth, have a way of playing with people's guilt in the past to manipulate them. Mm -hmm. And I've seen them destroy people with fooling around with that. It's dangerous. I agree. Very, very dangerous. And, you know, I just, I just think the whole idea that subsequent analysis cannot alter the moral quality of an act in the moment, whatever it is there, that's what it is. Right. The revelation later that you were sinning. That's right. Is, that's, is a blessing, actually. <laughs> it's a blessing. It's a blessing, so you won't do it again. It shouldn't put you in a state of depression because you were aware that you were sinning. You should be thankful. Yeah, that's well, right. all things given by God. So can we finish with this? Will you tell us, you made a film, The Meaning of the Trinity. And is it? it's not an answer to Oppenheimer, but it. he named his bomb, or their bomb. It's not fair just to single him out, but... Their bomb was named Trinity. And you're trying to say something in your film. It's like, hold on a second. Am I right? Do I have that right? Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As far as you're going, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and so what, right did, you, point, what did you think of this Hollywood attempt at explain, telling the story of, of, did you see it? No, didn't bother. Ah, okay. That, that makes sense, actually, on some level. I saw it. I wouldn't call him a hero in the film at all. But they definitely well, go back and forth between he has a lot to offer and he's making mistakes. For me, the whole story fell apart. I wouldn't call it a great film. And I would say that they, they in, in the end, held him high. I would definitely say that. Um, but tell us about your movie then. What, why did you call it the, the meaning of the Trinity? Like, wh what are you trying to do? Trinity. Well, as you see, John, we I... Uh... Every year from, from July 1st to August 9th, for almost 40 years now, 38 years, whatever it is, I and others have done a, a fast, um, prayer and time of prayer and fasting for 40 days, July 1st to August 9th, to, in the name of the truth of gospel nonviolence, so it will spread, okay? In 1988, I was doing that fast in Israel. And on July 16th, which in the Catholic Church is the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, I went up to uh, the mother house, if you will, of the Carmelites, which is on Mount Carmel and wow. up south side of Haifa. And I went there and celebrated Mass as a big deal and all that with the priest. Very, very nice. But then after after the Mass, when I was, when I was just... Uh, 
making my post-communion kind of discussion with God, you know, and so forth. I was walking outside the monastery walls and just looking over the Pacific, uh, the, the Mediterranean, from up on the, high on the mountain there. And then, like a like like a flash, right? No, it wasn't a flash. I don't want to put anything like that. Instantly, an insight was: I don't belong here. This is July sixteenth. I belong praying where the atomic bomb was first exploded in history. Wow. And you know, it's it's that it's that sense that when something hits you is true, you. It's, it's the like same it sense. Out. It's the same sense you spoke of, yeah. Yeah. It's a so I went back home and figured out all the stuff where it was exploded at Trinity Site and, and figured out how to, how to get out there on July 16th for the sole purpose of bringing to that event to bring good out of that evil event. And what's the good we were bringing? Prayer for forgiveness for the people that did it and prayer for the people who were, who, who was, who were hurt That's by it. It's beautiful. That's all. Nothing more. And and so on July sixteenth of nineteen ninety, seven of us went out there. We got a little tent and uh, there for twenty four hours and and mass and a few other things and you know we just prayed, prayed mostly in silence. And the understanding is, John, that prayer, it's love that saves. Love saves. Mm. But prayer is a form of love. If I just say the Jesus prayer for five seconds for someone's soul, Lord Jesus Christ, the living God, have mercy on John, you know, that's love. Because I've used up a piece of my human time in order to care for someone else, right? And... And therefore, and, and, and therefore, w w prayer is love, and love saves. It is the salvation reality because God is love. Mm. Christ like love. Okay. So we went out there and we did that the first year, and over the years since 1980, since 1990, um, people have come, more and more people, sometimes hundreds there. Sometimes there's been five or six. But the issue is we go there to bring good out of evil. To bring love where evil was placed. And we've done that now for all these years, right up until this year. In now, this movie, The Meaning of Trinity, is based on the fact that, you know, when... when, when when evil thinks, and I'm talking Satan here, when evil thinks it has completely conquered, completely conquered, um, it mocks. Mm. It mocks. Mm. The soldiers putting the crown of thorns and the purple cope on Jesus, tell us who's here, send you, get, free yourself, you know, it mocks. It mocks. The people who are doing that, they're just acting out of the darkness in them, but somehow, somehow, 
Oppenheimer comes up, and the stories differ from here and there. They, his, his story of how he came up with the name is, is after the fact. We don't know at the moment. But, but somehow it comes that this most destructive of all realities that has ever entered the human race, something that would make the surface of the earth hotter than the surface of the sun, and something that was going to send out destruction, not just for a moment or a day, but for decades into the future. This, this destructive of all, most destructive of all entities gets the name of God of love in Christianity. Mm. Because Trinity, Trinity is only a Christian term. Trinity is a Christian term. It, right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of love. And so anyway, we went there and we just, we went to the God of love and tried to do love and come back. And so there's mockery in that. I'm not saying Oppenheimer's, do, but in so naming it, it's like, yeah, it's the moment yes, of mockery. mockery. Yeah. Not, not, now, people people can mock. E evil can work through people. Oh, people even knowing it, you know? Right. But oh, fine, they do something evil, but they don't, they, they, they don't see the, full, the fullness of what they're about, the implications of what they're about. The God of love, the God of love, Trinity, is the name of the first atomic bomb exploded in the world. Yeah, you're right. History. Just utter mockery. Right. So, so we went there, and, we, and we've been there all these years, you know. As I say, some more and some less in terms of numbers and so forth and so on. But um, it's only been prayer. And this has turned a lot of people off. People want demonstrations. They want, you know, and there's a day there and so forth and so on, you know. And... Um, uh, no, no, it's no. This is this is bigger than um, we have an icon just for that. Our, our Lady of Mount Carmel and Trinity, which we use. And oh, we you have take it. You year. take it out. Oh, beautiful! I, I saw yeah, it in the, in the film. Yeah, yeah. Every year, and it's it's. Uh, and when you see the icon, and when you see the icon, what you see is, as has to be the case, it's not just Mary, but Jesus in the arms of Mary. And Jesus is looking at Mary, and Mary's looking at Jesus, but Mary is looking past Jesus to an atomic cloud that Jesus is being crucified. Mm. The world, what, what happened, what happened on Golgotha, what happened on Golgotha, that is Satan reigning to kill and maim and um, happened here, lies. So, yeah, so we, uh, people say... It's not doing any good. Mm. That's that's not that's not that's another conversation about. Let's have uh, let's let's have it sometime. That's great. We will have it sometime, John. About why so, why these little deeds, why these little deeds of Christ-like love, are determinative of human history and life and eternity. You know, I'm just I I, I like when things happen that others might call serendipitous. But how you came into us world and how, how your friend connected us 
And now this conversation, um, it's it's like you're saying with prayer. There's something else that will reveal itself. There's something good about it. I, I, I'm real thankful to have you on today. You may don't have to you figure it out, think, John. Yeah, we should figure it out. We should. <laughs> <laughs> That's my problem. That's why I got this big forehead. I got to stop I trying know, to figure I everything know, out. Uh, I'll come. I travel a little bit in my journeys to do this first things work. I, I'm going to look you up in Boston. Can we be friends that way? Oh, sure. If you ever get up here to to uh, to Boston, I'm I'm here. Um, Are you living with any of your daughters that they take you in in your older age? No, I'm still living in my own house, and I take care of myself. And you're a tough guy. Still doing what I can, but I'll tell you uh, now. This is this may not. Um, I don't know. Whether it's, I don't know. It's anti gospel or not, but. I'm against aging. I'll tell you that. I'm against aging. It's, it's I don't see God. any reason for it. <laughs> Gosh, it's just terrible. You know? Uh, you ain't kidding, man. My wife is the one who's ages grace, gracefully, and I'm fighting yeah, every my aspect. Wife did too. Yeah, my wife did too, very gracefully. It's almost like it didn't make any difference to her. Well, you know? My wife was telling me at 27 she wanted to be 50. And I'm like, really? I, I kind of want these years. So she wins now as we get older. So. But you know what it is, John? It's just something tells you about your mortality and about the great mystery of existence and everything else. When you go out to take a jump shot in the backyard at the basketball court, and you do it, and your feet don't leave the ground. <laughs> I love you. You're you're speaking my language. I went out to play baseball, and I couldn't get my my elbow over my my shoulder. It was terrible. It was a disaster. That, this is this is bad sign. Bad sign. I don't know. You're doing pretty good. You helped us today. So okay, John. Uh, we're gonna this link good. all your Thank good. Thank you for having me. We're gonna link your website and everything. You're a blessing. Um, and uh, link, we didn't even link get the website, John. Link the website. And link the YouTube channel. Absolutely, 100%. Because your work, um, among other things, is educational. But mostly, it's also, it provokes the spirit, which it should. It makes you wonder. Because let's come back. We'll do, we'll do, I, I think a lot of the people on here would like to hear some of your perspectives on Orthodox Christianity. Because as a Byzantine priest, you're in this weird place where a lot of us, especially converts in Orthodoxy, are like, what are they doing over there? And I'd love to hear your 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 ideas on that. So, next time, okay? Fine, John. Fine. I'm always willing to, always willing to talk. But well, you've said a billion guys. When you see the links, you'll see that this character, this good man, this priest is you committed a life to a lot of beauty. So, we'll keep talking. Thank you. Thank you. You're a baptized Christian. I'm a baptized Christian. Okay. Yes, we are. Orthodox, Orthodox, Catholic, uh, Methodist, and oh, so don't. forth and so on, you know? You're opening up a can of worms right now. <laughs> no, this, this one likes Apollo, and this one likes... Uh, uh, stick with substance, you know? I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, John, take care. All right, take care. Bye -bye. All right, there he goes, Mr. Charlie. He wouldn't let me call him father. Did y'all hear that? The honesty, integrity going up and up, higher and higher and higher. It, it, he makes a good case for nonviolence. And I don't know that I am the right person to take him on as per 
this conversation we started with St. Cyril and the idea of doing two goods instead of one. But less about taking them on and more about uh, a depth of thought, a life committed to something truly difficult and quite beautiful. That is Father Emmanuel Charles McCarthy in the Melkite tradition of the Catholic Church. This is Watar. Thank you for listening. Check us out. And uh, keep supporting. We're trying to get 50 new recurring donors before the clock strikes 12 on December 31st. That's you. I can feel it. It's you. A little bit each month. Who loves you? An important conversation on Watar is now over. Much love. See you soon. Come on down to the restaurant. Bye-bye.